Take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be in John chapter 7 today. This is the 32nd sermon through this gospel, but it's the fourth sermon in chapter 7. We're going to be concluding chapter 7 this morning in a sermon I've entitled, The Great Divider. The Great Divider. Most of you have probably heard this term, the great divide, but you may not know what the great divide refers to. The great divide actually refers to a geological reality that exists in North America and South America. In fact, I've got a picture of that. This great divide is what's known as the continental divide. It's this geological formation that is essentially a line of demarcation. This line starts all the way up in Alaska, goes through Canada, makes its way over the Rocky Mountains and down through Mexico, Central America, and then into South America, all the way down to the very tip in Argentina. And here's what the Great Divide is. Any river or stream or brook that is on the western side of the Great Divide flows to the Pacific Ocean. And any stream or brook or river that is on the eastern side of the Great Divide, where does it flow eventually? The Atlantic Ocean. So depending upon what side of the Great Divide water falls and water flows, it will flow in one of two directions, either to the west, to the Pacific, or to the east, to the Atlantic. Think about it. A storm can form over the Rocky Mountains, and raindrops can be falling from the clouds one drop can fall on the western side of the Great Divide, and it will eventually form with other drops and flow into the Pacific Ocean. Right beside it, another drop can flow, fall on the eastern side. It will eventually form with other drops, flow into the Mississippi River, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Atlantic Ocean. Whichever side of the Great Divide you're on determines the direction you will flow if you're a raindrop. Well, as the Great Divide is the divider of the Western Hemisphere, so too Jesus Christ is the Great Divider of the human race. His very presence divides humanity into two streams, flowing in one direction or the other. He is the Great Divider. Now, some would be offended at me saying such a thing about Jesus because they have developed this sentimental view of Jesus. They have developed this idea and created this view of Jesus that's far removed from the Jesus presented in the Scriptures. They have this idea of Jesus as one who is, well, he's the model of religious tolerance. Jesus is the emblem of one who accepts everyone for who they are and no matter what your identity or how you identify. Someone who is the ultimate expression of open-mindedness, harmony, and peace. But mark this. Jesus said this about his own person. He said this in Matthew chapter 10. He said, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You see, because Jesus demands absolute allegiance. And that's bound to be divisive. He, he says right here, he makes things not better, but worse in family relationships. 
And some of you know as you head in towards the holidays that it will be divisive if you bring up Jesus at Thanksgiving. It will be divisive if you talk about Christ at Christmas. You see, because every time the clear claims of Jesus are announced, it causes division. We see this all through the book of Acts. Every time the apostles, every time Paul and his missionary band entered into a new city and they would clearly proclaim the gospel unapologetically, there were two responses. Some received the message of Jesus with joy and with open arms. Others received the message with disdain and hatred. They hated the message and they hated the messengers. A division. Jesus, according to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, is both a precious cornerstone and a rock of stumbling and offense. In fact, if you'll remember, the Gospel of Luke records for us the the birth narrative, the most extensive narrative about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And as you move along into chapter 2, you find Jesus being taken as an infant baby into the temple by his mother and his adopted father, Joseph. And there in the temple, Luke tells us, there was an old, well-advanced-in-years man who had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not taste death until he saw, quote, the consolation of Israel. And I just imagine old Simeon in the temple, day after day, seeing young Hebrew couples come through those doors, preparing to dedicate their sons to the Lord, and thinking, is this him? Is this the consolation of Israel? Is this the Messiah coming through those doors? And time and again, no, that's not him, until finally Joseph and Mary come through into the temple complex, and Simeon sees the infant Jesus, and immediately he knows this is the Christ. And he goes over to this young couple. He doesn't know them. They don't know him. And he takes the infant from them. That would scare me a little bit if I was a young parent. He holds him up and he prays. He blesses God for this gift. And then he makes a prediction. He tells Mary, his mother, these words. Look at Luke 2.34. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This wipes away any idea of this sentimental, precious moments, peace, love, and harmony, Jesus. He is the great divider. From the very beginning, as a baby, as he enters Judea, Jesus is the great divider. And like the continental divide, you will either flow in one direction or the other. There is no middle ground. Interestingly, in our focal passage for this morning, John does not record any words of Jesus or any teachings of Jesus. Instead, what we see in these two paragraphs is the response to Jesus. The response to his words, the response to his teaching, the response to his invitation. If you'll remember, for the last several weeks, we've learned that Jesus goes into Jerusalem during this high festival called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the most populated Jewish festival in the first century. More pilgrims gathered in Jerusalem for this one because it was something like a seven, eight-day camping trip with your family. And on the last day of the feast, Jesus stands up in the middle of the high water libation ceremony as the priest is taking this golden jar of water mixed with wine, and he begins to pour it on the 
the altar, there's complete and total silence, and what does Jesus do? Well, look at John 7, verse 37. He stands up at the top of his lungs. He proclaims, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And what we'll see in our focal passage today is there is an immediate response. An immediate response to that invitation. And the division happens first among the crowd that's gathered there and then among the, the upper echelon religious leaders. Interestingly, these people that we're going to read about, they've got a lot in common. They've got the same geography. They've got the same heritage. They've got the same ethnicity. They've got the same religion. They're even really of the same family. They call all of them, call Abraham their father. But yet there is great division because of the words, the invitation of Jesus. He's the great divider. So let's look at our focal passage, John 7. We'll begin reading in verse 40. This is the word of God. Hear it. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now the key verse of this passage is really verse 43. Look at verse 43 again. So there was a division among the people over him. That Greek word under the English word division is the Greek word schisma, and we get our English word schism. The, the word schisma means to tear material. Now, what happens when you shred material? It does just that. It shreds. It frays. You have this fabric and all these different components and parts just tearing apart. There was this fraying, this unraveling this schisma because of Jesus and because of what he said. It's what we see here. It's what we see in the book of Acts in the first century of the church. And friends, it's what we see in our world today. There's a tearing, a schism over Jesus, not over the nebulous, murky, kiss babies and hug puppies Jesus, but the real Jesus, the Jesus we've been seeing in John's gospel for seven chapters, the Jesus that otherwise these people would be together, but now they are diametrically opposed. 
Now, in the passage in our ESV translation, the translators have divided this section into two paragraphs, and I think that's helpful for us because John is presenting to us in these two paragraphs two distinct groups or classes of people. And among these two classes of people, he identifies three different responses in each class. And so we're going to break those down. We're going to have two paragraphs, and so there's two points on my outline. The first one is this. Number one, I want us to consider that there is a schism among the laity. We understand this term laity in the church world to mean the non-clergy, the non-professional religious people, the non-ministers. Now, they wouldn't use this term laity among Judaism, but that's essentially what these people are. They're not the professionally religious people. They're the common people. In fact, in the second paragraph, we'll read again in just a moment, the religious rulers refer to these uh, people, the common people, as that crowd who's accursed because they don't even know the law. So these are the, the laity, the commoners, the hoi polloi, the huddled masses is this first group that John highlights. And they had a schism. They had a division over Jesus. In fact, you can see the division in three distinct ways. First of all, some among the laity saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise of Moses. They saw Jesus as the fulfillment of the promise of Moses. Look again at verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now, if you've been with us in our study, you know, several weeks ago when we were in chapter 6, that this same uh, proclamation was made about Jesus after he fed the 5,000 men plus thousands of women and children with the five barley muffins and a couple of sardines. They saw this miraculous multiplication of bread, and they immediately made in the connection in their minds to Moses and the magnificent, miraculous manna that God brought through Moses to the people. And so here is God bringing through, seemingly, Jesus this miraculous bread. And they said, ha, this is the connection to Moses. This is a miracle of bread. Clearly, he's the prophet. Now, what are they talking about? Well, there is a promise given to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. In fact, notice the promise that was given. God said, I will raise up for them, for Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they begin to think, well, maybe this Jesus is the prophet, the miraculous bread. Now think about the promise that Jesus just gave. He said, come to me and you'll be given water. You'll never thirst, rivers of living water. And so they would have made another connection to Moses of whenever the rock miraculously brought forth water for the people to drink. This really is the prophet. Now he's talking about giving us water here in this arid, dry land. So there's some among them, they're responding to Jesus at least with some degree of reverence and belief. He's the prophet. He's the fulfillment of of the promise of Moses. But still others looked at him, and they saw him as the fulfillment of the prophesied Messiah. The prophesied Messiah. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is an office. It's the Greek word for Meshiach or Messiah. So they're saying, this is the Messiah. This is the promised Messiah of Israel. This is a great profession. If you'll remember, whenever Peter was asked, or all the disciples were asked by Jesus, 
Who do you say that I am? Peter responded, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know by looking through a New Testament lens that this office of prophet, predicted by Moses, and this office of a Messiah, it's one and the same person. Now, in the first century Judaism, they saw them as two different people. There's a promised prophet, and there's a promised Messiah. A prophet would be a preacher, someone who would come and preach boldly and would proclaim boldly the word of God. The Messiah was one who would be regal, a, a descendant of David who would sit on the throne of David, who would establish and reestablish Israel to their former glory. So they said, well, we're going to have a prophet who's going to be a great preacher, and we're going to have a Messiah who's going to be a king who rules and reigns and restores Israel and sits on the throne of David. In fact, if you'll remember back in chapter 1 of John that we studied several months ago, some of the Pharisees and religious leaders came out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, and they're baptizing. They're, he's baptizing people, and they question him. They interrogate him. Hey, are you the prophet? What did John the Baptist say? Nope. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? What did John the Baptist say? Nope. I'm not either of those people. I'm just a forerunner. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. And so now some of these people that have been hearing Jesus, he's causing this schism, this rending between them. Some say he's the prophet, the promise of Moses. He's the Christ, the prophesied Messiah. But here's the third fracture, the third schism among the common people. There were some that were publicly misinformed. The publicly misinformed. In verse 41, but some said, again, this is still the crowd, the people in the temple, some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So again, these are some voices from the crowd, and they're shouting down those who claim Jesus may be the Christ. Are you kidding me? What are you talking about? He doesn't possibly bear the credentials that the Christ is supposed to have. We all know, even though they're not the educated class, they're not the university class, they still know some things about the Bible and the Scripture, and they've gone to synagogue, and they've heard the homilies, and they say, we know that whenever Messiah comes, he's, he's not coming from Galilee, that's for sure. He's coming from Judea, the region where David was. In fact, he's coming from the very city of David, Bethlehem. Now, obviously, they're severely misinformed, aren't they? Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. He fulfilled the prophecy of Micah 5.2 that the Messiah would be born in the city of David in Bethlehem. But they don't know this. They don't understand his origins. They're severely misinformed. They think he's from Nazareth up in Galilee, not from Judea. But even beyond that, they're severely misinformed about Jesus' origins because not only was he not from originally Nazareth, he was from Bethlehem, but friends, he wasn't originally from Bethlehem. He's originally from God. In fact, the whole Gospel of John begins by John saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the Creator. When you start talking about Jesus in those terms in your circles of relationships, you know what's going to happen? Division. Jesus is God. Of course, none of them do any investigation to find out the true origin of Jesus' birthplace. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. 
So there's a schism among the laity. Some think he's the prophet. Some think he's the Christ, and still others say, no, he's a charlatan, an imposter, a pretender. And then look at John's commentary in the next verse, verse 43, on how they said we ought to respond to his pretending. Verse 43, so there was a division, a schism among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. So this idea or concept or agenda to arrest Jesus was not just among the religious leaders. Even some of the commoners said, hey, why aren't you people taking care of this guy? He needs to be arrested. Now, they were likely influenced by the jealous religious leaders, but this idea of arresting Jesus was among the elite and among the commoners as well. But mark this, no one laid hands on him. No one laid hands on him. We considered this reality two weeks ago when we were looking at verse 30. Look again at verse 30. On the same day, this happened. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I told you then, and I'll repeat it today, Jesus was invincible until his hour had come. He is working according to God's providential timetable. And there's no one and nobody who could upset God's providential purposes. Again, the Feast of Booths, second week of October on our calendar. Six months from now, the Feast of Passover, second week of April on our calendar. For six months, Jesus will be in Judea. For six more months, he will go on teaching for six more months, he will go on healing, performing miracles, even raising Lazarus from the dead, proving he is who he claims to be. But six months from now, during Passover, he will be betrayed by a friend into the hands of the Jewish leaders who will turn him over to the coward Pilate. He will be beaten, mocked, afflicted, and hung on a Roman cross to die. That was God's timetable. But today would not be that day. No one laid a hand on him because it was not yet his time to go. Again, this is the crowd. This is the laity. Some of them wanted to arrest him. And we can ask the question, why? <laughs> what has he done? Really? Why do they want to arrest him? Why do the religious leaders want him dead? They want to kill him. Why? Are they just bloodthirsty? Do they enjoy seeing people suffer? They really want him to hand him over to the Romans so they can whip him and beat him? Why? Well, there may be some of that. But here is what I think is the real reason. We just want Jesus to disappear. <laughs> we just want him out of here. He is upsetting our way of life. He's upsetting the status quo. And today, there are people who say, well, I would want to kill Jesus, but you know, let's not talk about him. Let's not bring him up. Let's just have him go away. Jesus, stop trying to press into my life. Would you just leave? Would you stop causing tension in my family? Stop calling me to pick up my cross and follow you. Would you just disappear. 
Have you noticed that in your world? In your circles of relationships? You can talk about God among your coworkers. You can say things like, I'll pray for you. You can say, God bless you after someone sneezes. Everybody's okay with that. When you start talking personally about Jesus, people find reasons real quickly to leave the room. I don't want to hear about Jesus. Jesus, would you just disappear? You know, sometimes we can make evangelism and our call to evangelism as Christians more difficult than it really is. We can tend to think, I just got to get the message right. I got to make sure I frame it in such a way that it's not too offensive. I've got to learn all my apologetic answers so I can answer any question of any skeptic. Listen, Jesus was the best evangelist for Jesus. He was the perfect apologist for Jesus. And he was rejected by most of them. You're not going to be a better evangelist than Jesus. People will reject him still. They had Jesus right in front of them. They knew about the miracles. They heard him teach. And no one ever spoke like this man. But they rejected him still. That's the first class of people we see, these commoners, the laity. There was a schism among the laity. But secondly, in the next paragraph, there is a schism among the leaders. And just like in the first paragraph, there are three groups of that class of the laity. There are also three responses or three groups among the religious leaders. The first group among the leaders I want us to consider, I'm calling the dumbfounded officers. (laughs) What? The dumbfounded officers. If you remember when we studied previously back in verse 32, the officers were given an arrest warrant by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the ruling council over Israel. They govern everything that happens in the Jewish, among the Jewish people religiously, and they were given an arrest warrant. You all go now arrest Jesus. Why did they tell him to do that? Well, the passage says because they had heard the muttering, the whispers, the murmurs, the, the scuttlebutt. People were saying, this guy's the Messiah. They wanted to shut that conversation down. So they sent these officers to go and arrest him. The religious leaders, I call them Barney Fife. We got to nip it, nip it in the bud, right? They want to stop Jesus at all costs. So they sent these officers. When the officers returned to the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin are puzzled and perplexed. Uh, Guys, where's Jesus? We clearly told you, we gave you a directive, go arrest him. You've come back, you don't have him. You're empty-handed. We expected to see him bound and gagged, certainly gagged. We don't want to hear him anymore. You should have brought him here. Where is he? You had one job, right? What did they say? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Now, we can hear that word officers, and we may tend to think in our modern terms of police officers who are trained, who are armed, who are outfitted uh, to accomplish these types of arresting warrants. We can think of military officers who function with their weaponry 
and their directives. We can even think of like the Gestapo, right? They're going to get their man. But, but these officers are really not like that. The officers that functioned at the dispatch of the Sanhedrin, they were Levites. They were of the Levitical um, apparatus. They were not priests, but they were of the priestly line. They were religiously trained. They were religiously educated. But these are kind of like the church staff. <laughs> They're not mercenaries. They're not, you know, these military Rambos. They're just the church staff. And so the Sanhedrin sends the church staff to go and arrest Jesus and bring them, him to them. They go to Jesus. They hear him. And they are undoubtedly torn. We've heard from our leaders that this man is evil. He's a threat to our doctrine. He's a threat to our systems. But this man speaks like no one we've ever heard before. And they've heard a lot of sermons. They've been to a lot of synagogues. They've heard a lot of homilies and messages and lessons. They've heard so many sermons. And they come back from just that simple invitation. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And they say to the Sanhedrin, no one's ever spoken like this man. I don't think they fully crossed over into faith in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, but they clearly recognize there is something very different about him. So this is the first group, the dumbfounded officers. Secondly, the disgusted rulers. The disgusted rulers. How did the rulers respond to these Levitical officers? Verse, verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? <laughs> They're flabbergasted. How could you be so foolish? How could you be so dumb? Has he pulled the wool over your eyes as well? I mean, we sent you as our staff. You're Levitical officers. You're trained in the religious matters of the law. We thought surely you'd be able to see right through his ruse. Have you also been deceived? Then notice verse 48. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They said, think about it, guys. We're the upper crust. We're the elites. We're the ones with degrees beside our names. We're PhDs. You know what PhD is? That's a PhD. We're the PhD. That's who we are. Have any of us believed in Jesus? Have any of us turned to him? Of course, they say that not knowing there is one among them who is on the road to belief, and we'll get to him in just a moment. And then in verse 49, they give full voice to their condescending disdain for the common class. Notice verse 49 again. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. But what do they think of the commoners? They're cursed. These dumb, uneducated commoners. In Jewish culture, there was a strong separation between the religiously educated and the common folk who did not study the scriptures, who probably couldn't even read. They viewed them as accursed. That's a strong word, isn't it? Accursed. Think about the stark contrast between the religious ruler's view of this crowd and Jesus' view of the crowds. 
What did Jesus say about the crowds? In Matthew 9, he said this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. These religious rulers were to be the shepherds over Israel. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. When they saw the crowds, they had condescending disdain. We can see this same kind of elitist mentality today, can't we? We can see this among the upper echelon. Nobody who really has been highly educated, who's gone to university, would ever seriously consider the claims of Jesus. Those who are in the upper echelon of the corporate world, think of the corporate world if some of you are in that world. What would it be like to speak of Jesus in those circles? Higher education, oh, we don't want to talk about that. There's this idea of elitist mentality. So these rulers are disgusted with the officers. What, do you like them? You think like them? We know no, no one who is academically credible would ever believe in this Jesus. No one who's fully informed. None of the professional elite class would trust in this Jesus. Not so fast. That's the third schism among the leaders. And I'm calling him the discerning Pharisee. The discerning Pharisee. We were introduced to this discerning Pharisee back in chapter 3 when it says that Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, a ruler over Israel, came to Jesus at night. That's why I lovingly refer to him as Nick at night. He came to Jesus at night, and he began to ask questions. In that conversation, Jesus said, you must be born again. Nick didn't get it how can I crawl back up into my mama's womb? That's the thing about babies. Once they come out, you can't get them back in, right? And Jesus said, you're one of the teachers over Israel and you don't understand this? Four chapters later, we see this very same Nicodemus again. One of the Sanhedrin, and he speaks up. Look at verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I think John highlights here that Nicodemus was one of them. He's a part of the elite. He's a top dog, upper echelon. And what Nicodemus does, he, he doesn't bring up a doctrinal issue. He doesn't bring up Anything that Jesus has said, he brings up a point of order. Point of order? If you ever watch Senate proceedings, if you want to fall asleep. <laughs> point of order, chairman. Uh, I have a question about due process. I have a question about what we're doing here. He's fully aware, and the rest of them would have been fully aware, that case law prohibited not giving an accused person a full and fair hearing. Our law is based on Hebrew law. I don't know if you know that. This is part of their law. Deuteronomy 
chapter 1, verse 16. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. There was an established system of due process, and they were not following it. In fact, think about what Nicodemus is likely kind of saying under the current. You accuse this crowd of being accursed because they don't know the law. Well, guys, you ain't following the law. But his colleagues were too worked up to listen to his voice of reason, so they level against him what would be the equivalent of a put-down. A verbal insult. Look at verse 52. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that the prophet, no prophet arises from Galilee. That would be akin to us saying something like this here in Chattanooga, the fastest growing city in the state, and we can tell by our traffic, right? Are y'all from Polk County or something? You hillbilly redneck, backwoods, bumpkin. That's what they're saying. If you're from Polk County, see me later. I'm sorry. <laughs> I told my siblings this story. There's a Polk County in Florida, too, that has the same kind of reputation. Just so it's, This may not be Polk County, Tennessee I'm talking about, okay, if you're from there. They concluded that the only reason Nicodemus could possibly be bringing this up is he's some hayseed yokel clodhopper like them and like Jesus. You must be from inferior stock too. Of course, their assertion that no prophet has arisen from Galilee is patently false. Jonah, the prophet, was from Galilee. Nahum, the prophet, was from Galilee. Elijah, the prophet, was from Galilee, and many others. But they're so blinded by their hatred of Jesus, you'll know there's no prophet from Galilee. Don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> My mind is made up. Now, likely, Nicodemus was not yet at a genuine point of complete faith in Jesus. But he would be. He would be. See, when we get to the end of the Gospel of John next year, when we get to chapter 19, after Jesus is killed on that Roman cross, John, the beloved disciple, says two people, took Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, in love and compassion for Jesus, takes his corpse from that cross, wraps it in burial cloths, prepares the body with some 75 pounds of spices, and he lovingly places the limp body of Jesus in Joseph's tomb. He's not yet there, but at the end, Nicodemus forsakes his reputation, forsakes his upper elite status, and he sacrificially and compassionately cares for the body of Jesus. But what was different about Nicodemus? What was different about him? Think about it. He's the only one that went to Jesus privately. He's the only one that followed what Jesus would give in the invitation. 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Nicodemus, this ruler, this upper echelon elite ruler, was thirsty. And he came to Jesus and he began to drink. And as he began to drink the words and the message of Jesus, his thirst began to be satisfied. So in this passage, two paragraphs, two classes of people, the laity, the leaders, and there's three groups of belief in each of those classes, some who are far from belief in Jesus, some who are kind of close, and others who are closer still. Among the laity, the crowd, the far, he can't be the Messiah. He doesn't have the right credentials. Let's arrest him. Some who are closer, this really is the prophet. And some who are closer still, this is the Christ. Among the leaders, you have the same three groups. There's the far, the religious rulers. This guy's a charlatan. He's a fake. Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? There's the close, the, the officers. No one ever spoke like this man. And then there's the closer still, Nicodemus. Two halves, three groups in each half, far close and closer. And I would simply ask you, where are you on that spectrum? Where are you on that spectrum? As I close, I just want to make this point of belief, uh, of application. And um, I mentioned it earlier. It's just simply this. As a Christian, do not be surprised if there is division in your world over your testimony for Jesus. Do not be surprised because Jesus is the great divider. But regardless of the responses you receive, share Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. Give your testimony for Jesus. Again, there's not a greater communicator of the hope we find in Jesus than Jesus himself. And people were divided over his message. You see, because belief in Jesus, it's not the continental divide. It's the eternal divide. Just like two raindrops can fall on either side of that continental divide and they will flow in completely opposite directions. There are going to be two people sitting beside each other in this very room. And wherever you land on the great divide will determine where your life will flow. Not only where your life will flow, where your eternity will flow. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Have you stepped across that line of faith and belief in what Christ has done, in who Christ is, the Son of God, his resurrection from the dead to give new life to all who believe in him. And the call today, the invitation today is to step across that line. And that leads to my last thought. Every life is flowing toward two eternal destinies and the dividing line is Jesus.